Okay, hello everybody. This is your podcast host. Welcome to Law Simplified. This is Sarah O'Casey. I am your podcast host and this is my first podcast with Law Simplified and I'm extremely excited to be here. I'm joined by a spectacular guest today who has been in the legal industry as a criminal barrister. Prior to his career at the bar, he was a professional DJ for over 20 years playing throughout the world. He had worked closely with artists such as Aiken and David Guetta. He then qualified as a solicitor and now is a criminal law barrister. Ladies and gentlemen, I am joined today by Mr. Mark Robinson from Great James Street Chamber. Mark, hello, hello, welcome and thank you for being here today. Hi, how are you? Very well, thank you. How are you doing? I'm really good today, even more so that today's my birthday, so I'm extremely happy. Yes, yes, it is. Happy birthday. Thank you for recording this podcast on your birthday, Mark. Happy, happy birthday from Law Simplified. Yeah, that's fine. Thank you. Um, Our podcast listeners, we do have a special surprise with our criminal barrister, Mark Robinson, on our TikTok. So make sure you stay tuned till the end. Make sure you check out our TikTok page at Law Simplified UK. Now, Mark, we're going to start to talk about your journey. Now, I must say your career path has been fantastic and definitely an unconventional one. Give us a brief snippet about your journey and why did you want to become a barrister? Oh, well, um, actually, I, I I didn't want to become a barrister. That's that's the biggest joke. Um, I literally fell in, stumbled into this profession I um I'm sure many of your listeners would have not heard the story, but it came about is I actually um, had an altercation with my wife's ex-partner um, and I ended up being charged with assault. And I'll, I'll be clear, I didn't do anything, but that's how these things are. Um, I ended up, it ended up going all the way to um, Woolwich Crown Court in um, 2014, May of 2014. And the barrister that was meant to do my case, his, his trial he was doing at that time, overran. And so um, I, I decided to represent myself much against the advice of the judge. Wow. And um, she, I, you know, she said, are you sure you really want to do this? I was like, yes. And I was just frustrated with, the, you know, I, I, with the legal system. I, I sacked a, a firm of solicitors at that point and I was, I, I was really tired of it. So um i i think yeah that was what motivated me and then i looked up the offense which was assault occasioning actual bodily harm and i thought oh this doesn't seem too hard and then i thought i'd have time to prepare the case the judge said i'm going out to lunch i'll give you all the time you need um i'll come back and set a date into the future and then she came back after lunch and she said i've looked at your case again and we're starting tomorrow and I'm swearing in the jury and we're sw- I'm swearing in the jury now and you've got till 10 o'clock in the tomorrow morning to be case ready wow. and so I, I stayed up until um maybe one two in the morning which um now I know all good barristers do well, I, try, <laughs> I, I try to avoid that to be honest and um yeah I was ready with cross-examinations and I cross-examination I cross-examined the complainant um and the prosecutor, Mr. David Jenkins, who's no longer with us, um, after I'd finished cross-examining the complainant, took off his wig and said, you should become an advocate. Wow. And that was the first person that applied the scene in, in my head. I'd never 
been into silks or crown core all these other you know law shows that everyone else um you know seems to be into yeah I had no intention of um, pursuing any academia whether it was a law degree or anything else and 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 I actually left school with no GCSEs or A levels you know I was I was probably one of the thickest people in school <laughs> um in part to be fair I, I had a learning difficulty called dyspraxia and and I wasn't aware of it it wasn't um something that was known in the 80s I think people were just um sorting out the support for it in in um just for dyslexia around that time mm. so i i did that first case and we i got through it and um unfortunately it was ended up with a hung jury and mm. so i had to go through the whole thing again in november of 2014 this time i instructed an expert um, um because the allegation was i hit someone over the head with a hammer but However, they had absolutely no injuries and there was no blood. So I instructed an expert to analyse the hammers. Um, obviously, no blood. It, it helped even more because the complainant refused to provide any DNA and blood samples. Um, I mentioned all this in my closing speech and, and it went down rather well. Now, during that particular time um, in on the second trial, there was um, some barristers watching me, coming in and out of court and watching me. And... One of them is Anteo, who happens to be, she's recently joined my chambers, Great James Street. So it's funny how life works out. Wow. But um, they were there. And just when the, I'd finished, the the, um, the judge um, did her summing up. And it's funny, the judge's name is actually Judge Robinson. Um, so it's Mark Robinson and the, the, the second prosecutor, because uh, unfortunately, Mr. Um, um, Jenkins wasn't available. So another um prosecutor um, um, Robertson was doing it and funnily enough the actual um, court clerk was also named um, Robinson <laughs> so there was three Robinsons and a Robertson so it gets crazy so I went out for the, the actual um, canteen while I was waiting for the, the jury verdict on the second trial and um, and who's a and who's a Christian minister she actually um, started um, praying with me and saying look this is journey's bigger than you you're meant to do this and I and, and again I still didn't see it at that particular time as far as I was concerned I, I mean I mean yeah I was just interested in not going to prison to be honest with you which was what <laughs> I was facing um so I went back outside the court after listening to these three black female barristers telling me that I should really get into the profession and I sat outside the court and um you know, you're waiting around. Then I heard all parties in the case of Robinson going to court number 10, went into the court and the actual clerk, it might have been actually the usher to be fair. And he, um, he had a wry smile. Now, throughout the whole case, he looked really stern and quite miserable and disengaged, as did the jury on his second trial. But um, he had a wry smile, said verdict. And then I saw the judge um, tearing up things behind her desk and um i um i didn't know what the meaning of that was mm. um but then the jury came in and then it was um foreman of the jury do you do, do you now have the verdict or words to that effect and uh, it's only two words you want to hear and not guilty and yeah. listen right you you have no idea how that felt because I, I was on bail for that for 18 months oh, wow. and so it was absolutely awful you know it, it took a toll on my mental health I must say um, must and 
uh, you know, I, I was drinking heavily and all sorts because the pressure got too much and you know it put yeah. my my marriage under immense strain even though my wife was supportive and, and she actually gave evidence in the second trial um so all of this happened and I was acquitted and then afterwards the case the officer who, who arrested me who was quite nice to be fair um along with the, the first prosecutor David Jenkins who really helped me a lot in the, in the first trial um she actually gave me some career advice and said the person who represented you in the police station was a Mr um I mean well he was um actually an accredited police station rep right. representative and that's something that people um um you have to do to do police station attendances so even if you're a solicitor you have to be accredited but you don't have to do be a solicitor to do the police stations it's a separate course in its own entity um and so I did that course I think at the University of Cardiff where most people seem to do it um and um I was yeah the funny there so it was the police officer that told me to do that and you have to be um underneath a firm so remember I told you I sacked one firm of solicitors in the beginning of the case yeah I got a next firm of solicitors and they were really good I still work with them and for them to this day but um they, yeah, they took me on as a probation, um, a probationary police rep. So think about it. The, the officer who's arrested me is giving me career advice. The, the prosecutor is looking to potentially get me banged up as help with my own case and inspired <laughs> me to get into law. And the solicitor's firm that was doing all the litigation stuff behind me, behind the scenes, um, actually took me on. So it was amazing. So I did that course. Now, what happened then? The solicitor, uh, Mr. Anthony Graham from Moose and Robinshaw, brilliant firm. Yeah, they actually told me at uh, the time that he, oh, he said you'd like me to do um, Silex, which is tired legal executive. Yeah, of course, that's another strand to get into the profession. Correct. And if I do um, advanced criminal litigation or criminal litigation level three, and and I went to do that, I went to look into it. Then I was told to do the whole Silex course by the course providers, but. It transpired when I just, I always thought I had dyslexia. I got tested it and then it ended up, um, as I said, transpired. I had dyspraxia. And so they couldn't support me with with certain things I might need to improve my studying experience. Right. So, so the course providers at, at that law school suggested that I go to Birkbeck. And because I was working full time in a, a criminal justice um, youth organization charity called Spark to Life, and I, I'd worked with them for worked with them for a period of five years, and so I went to Birkbeck, took a test to for, on this case called the Morag, Rock, Morag or something, and it was an old nineteenth um, century case about a ship, and quite quite page heavy, but I had to do critical analysis, and I did well they they the, the um lecturer was so impressed she offered me a place over the phone and wow. so i i enrolled i got my disabled student allowance they gave me a study skills tutor i was able to get recording equipment to record the lectures from it um it was a really generous grant i got um, a macbook pro i had to top up the money but that was really useful i got extra loan times on my library um, books I got um, paper I got um, well extensions on um, submissions of essays I mean I've heard most universities have stopped that now but at the time I got that and I was the last ever cohort to get the actual grant from the government they stopped grants and that's just loans so back then you could get like I think six thousand pound a year grant 
And even though I was hit with the 27K for the degree, I think I was the first year or second year that got hit with that. But um, that's how it goes. But yeah, I got through. I won a couple of awards while I was there, Career Shifter Award. And they also, um, I won another award, which gave me £7,500 towards my LPC. And so I did really good at but like I got a high T1, but barely just missing out on a first, which was quite upset. But in the midst of all that, in my second year, I met a firm called um, EHB Solicitors, Emery Hillel and Brown, which is based in Stratford. Now, remember I said I worked for Spark to Life, yes. a youth organisation. So they had a young man I was working with. I was one, I was one of his key workers case workers and I he asked me to drop some important legal document which would really assist his case uh, in a crown court trial I dropped it up to the solicitors um, firm EHB and I started talking to one of the partners and we had a nice chat he was really interested in me and I told him my story which I share with you today Mm -hmm. and he said to me look you know we need a police rep would you would you be interested in I was like oh I don't know about that now because at that time I actually thought about being a barrister, I didn't want to be a solicitor. And I think I, jo- I joined the Inns of Court as a student member um, 2017. Um, and so uh, that was my focus. That was my goal. And I think I might have done one qualifying session by that time as well. But um, I told I, I told him, look, I, I, you know, I'm not sure about this. And, he, you know, he was quite persistent. He said, look, let me take you out to dinner. And he spoke to me again. And then... I think it took me a couple of months and I spoke to my other f- good friend who, um, who, who's a barrister and, and my wife, who's my supreme counsel. I get all my advice from her. <laughs> and so she, um, they said, look, what have you got to lose? And so I, and I spoke to them and it, uh, they took me out to dinner. Um, two more of the partners turned up at this dinner. And then I just said, look, what's your view to a training contract? And, they said, yes, they'd love to be in a position to, and they drafted it. And I had the offer of a training contract before I'd even sat my second year undergraduate degree exams. And under SRA rules, you can start a training contract anywhere from your second year um, yes. exam. So I started um, on at exactly, what is it, three years to the day, today being March the 1st. So wow. I decided to do it on my birthday. March the first. It's like it's a refreshing of everything. I view my birthday, so I did. Yeah, it I was going to say you do choose to do things on your birthday. That's how you uh, celebrate. <laughs> yes. So I started then, and um, it was conditional on, on me completing my passing my LPC, which I did, and obviously my degree exams, and I, and I passed everything. And then right. um, I was with them. I, I did a con another great firm, Black Antelope Law which uh, Shaheen Mamoon, an excellent guy. Um, yes. And again, I, and he's, he's, he sends a lot of work my way and, and, and vice versa. Um, and I did my seats in family, civil, and um, I think some housing law stuff. And that was under super supervision of um, a, a guy called Simao Paxi Kato, who's a, a tr- actually a, a barrister and, a, and um, an advocacy trainer, um, Grace in. Right. And now they had a kind of new kind of firm, which was an, an alternative stru- business structure, I believe, where it was a barrister and a solicitor together. But it worked very well and they were very, very busy. Um, and um, 
that they gave me my first real advocacy experience. So I think I did Clerkenwell County Court for a possession hearing. And then my best one, when I when I was leaving those guys, they had me do a whole hearing at um, the family court in central London. And that was amazing. It was only to attach a penal notice to um, an, an, um, a costs order, I think. But mm-hmm. it took the whole day I was there for and I had to do all this position statement. And I was literally had no supervisor. I was just there by myself with one of their other um, trainees shadowing me. And it, But it was an amazing experience. And again, that really cemented the fact that I knew I didn't want to be a solicitor. Mm-hmm. And even a solicitor advocate just wouldn't be enough for me. And I'll go into that in a minute. So I carried on my training contract and I just really wasn't happy, if I'm being honest. Um, you know, I was I was under immense stress at the time. I even ended up in hospital due to stress-related symptoms because oh, no. I lost the feeling in the left side of my face. And I nearly dropped out of the LPC course altogether. I was actually going to walk and do the bar course. I became so disillusioned. But something told me, keep on going, Mark. Finish this journey yes. and it'll be worth it. So I did, and then what I um, I think, but I what I did do though is because I had all that experience as a, a probationary police rep with another f- firm before coming to EHB, I managed to get my firm to agree for me to finish my training contract a few months earlier because I wasn't happy doing all that litigation sitting in an office. It was really depressing for me, and so I went first as a freelance police rep, and then because I had lots of contacts, we've got WhatsApp groups which share we share work on there. And so I met a load of solicitors and I was doing all these police stations. Now, I then went and finished my LPC exams. Yeah. And I, what I did, um, I bunched, they were all, I did about six, seven exams um, over the space of February last year. And I got really sick doing it because of distress, but I did it. And I did an, an additional module to finish my LPC quicker. I did an additional module at um, BPP alongside London Metropolitan University where I was going which was crazy but you know I was doing exams that um, consecutively days apart uh, the next day so I did all of that passed and then while I was doing the police station work what happened is Covid um, took um, happened the first lockdown which was very severe a lot of loads of solicitors were furloughed and lots of people were scared to go to the police stations but I was the one guy that still went out, I, albeit I went out in my mask, gloves, <laughs> and I would literally change clothes, put them in a bag outside the police station and, and go home wearing something completely different because we, I think people were really super paranoid then. Yes, and I was yes. even thinking about getting a hazmat suit at one point. But <laughs> what happened is I started getting serious police station work. So I was doing murders and rapes. And so that kind of cemented my reputation with yeah. a lot of citizens firms. Now, shortly after that in June, because I was just waiting for my results for my LPC, it takes a couple of months. I got my results, I think in May, and I got admitted to the role in, in June. Now what happened, because of all the police station work I did, all of the work followed me into the court with this, the same solicitors. So I started working as a freelance criminal defence solicitor in, in, in the actual magistrate's courts. And I started doing trials. I think in my, from second week being qualified, I was doing trials. I was probably completely out of my depth, but I did it and I coped. And I think I won a trial, mags trial, trial quite early on. So I was wow. doing really well. Um, uh, loads of work. And I thought, you know, I'm going to take a punt on it and I'm going to apply for a transfer. And I did my higher rights. Now, funny, I had, I've had i got a reputation of passing all my exams. I never failed at a sing, single exam in Birkbeck, and I, I never got nothing less than a 2-2. You know, most things I think I got firsts. 
Um, and then even, you know, the LPC, I think because I had the training contract, I was less bothered. And so my, my, <laughs> my, my motivation was just to pass. However, at London, I passed most things. But when I did this high rights thing, I kept on failing. So the first time I was ill in the exam, they told me to go home. And I didn't, I didn't listen. I assisted carrying on with the exam. So I didn't get a good result. The next time I passed the advocacy, but I didn't do so well with the actual um, written exam. And then, right. and then I, I tried it with view law and then the computer broke, had a te- technical break on my computer oh, no. with, the, with the invigilator. And then that really messed me up. And, and then I managed to persuade, persuade BPP to let me go back on the course again. And they did, and I did the, the higher rights. And I'm pleased to say I passed that with a score of 74, which wow, is well a distinction. So I, I did really, really well. well I weren't having it, but um, <laughs> with, I applied to be transferred to the bar in about September of last year. And what happened, I, I already spoke to my chambers, Great James Street. Now, the story with them goes is that in 2019, I, I gate crashed 15 year anniversary. <laughs> I found out about, I'm a networker. And one thing I'll say to anyone listening, aspiring barristers, networking is the key. It really is down to who you know. Um, you know doing blind application forms is all very good and well but you really really need to be out there and um, talking to people and meeting people because you don't it's contacts have your phone full like and that's what I did I networked my way to where I am Um, and so I met them and then they were really impressed by my story obviously the BBC stuff is a, a really major selling point as well for me and then the, the senior clerk, the head clerk then, and and who's head clerk now, Zoe, they took me out to lunch, a fantastic slap-up lunch in early 2020. And so I was, you know, they said, look, you could join us. They were more than happy. And then um, when I did get all my act together and I was sorting out my transfer, I was offered a full tenancy by the head of chambers, um, Alan Jones QC, and which was quite amazing. You know, they, they no question of doing pupillage or anything. And they wrote, provided a letter to the bar. And two of my best instruction solicitors wrote to the BSB as well. And what happened, I clocked up about 100 court cases with trials before I'd even applied. And the argument was, is that look, I've got more experience than any second six barrister. So how can you really make me do any kind of pupillage? Yes. And I'd got my higher rights. So wow, they got everything. Um, I I I'd only just got my higher rights certificate from SRE because I dithered and delayed it when I got my first higher rights certificate from BS from BPP. But um, they I got my higher rights certificate on a Sunday, and then I think this is October or early October. And then by the Thursday, um, the BSB wrote to me and said, "Yeah, we've approved your transfer to the bar, and you're exempt from all forms of academic and vocational training." So it's a to- it was a total exemption. And so I got signed off as a, a qualified barrister, basically. Um, and I just needed to get called. I got called by in the temple on the 30th of, of by a master Stephen KQC. Um, I, th- I can't, is it 33 Bedford where I think, but uh, um, forgive me if I'm wrong. And then um, I started with Chambers on the 1st of December. And to be honest, um, it's been amazing for for a couple of reasons how the journey went considering I never wanted to be a barrister in the first place or a lawyer anything and the fact that I've never 
barring one application to one chambers who will remain nameless. And I only did that to see, they promised they give disabled students um, and, um, guaranteed interviews, which is simply not true. Yeah. Um, I've never had a formal interview for any chambers uh, or, or legal position. And I've never, and I've never I've done any application forms. I've never gone on Pupilage Gateway. I don't even know what the Pupilage Gateway is. And, and so I've wow. got this far and I've, I've been doing trials. I mean, I was given, I only ever acted as a high rights solicitor a week before I actually got called. And that was probably because they knew I was going to be called. And then I was given briefs and I've been doing Crown Court work quite a lot, along with the mags practice. I do do a little bit of prosecution, mm-hmm. um, but not too much. And the defence is my thing. But obviously with the Crown Court trials being hamstrung, as Boris would say, we, um, <laughs> it's difficult to run trials at the moment with the restrictions. But I have done one. I did Stolcon Trent. Um, the beginning of February and um, again I've heard of juniors that have not done trials and this was in when things were good and for two three years since they they were started that um their tenancy and so I've been doing it from the outset I mean today as we speak I think I'm just about to get briefed on an attempted murder I've got section 18 coming up and I'm getting things that are probably Beyond my call, cool, but it's, I'm 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 fairly competent to do these things. Yes, I'm, I'm, I'm getting I'm getting instructed on an awful lot of stuff, and and um, again, I think when things turn around, um, and the Crown Courts, the social distancing stops, and they can run jury trials, I, I'm I'm sure I'll be in Crown Court all the time. I, I think I'll have a very Crown Court, good Crown Court practice. And I think yeah, the thing no is, the thing is, is is because as I said to you, it's because I network, and yes. it's also it's also I just get on with people, you know, there's a, a, the bar is viewed a particular way, a middle class, you know, pale, male, stale kind of thing. And, and as I, and compared to solicitors in London, where it's very black and Asian heavy, like is, you know, is, there's a lot, honestly, like people that own the firms, loads of black and Asian run law firms, brilliant law firms out there. Yeah. But when you get to the bar, I've noticed that more often than not, I'm the only black person in the room. Wow. None, like and when I mean the only, there's no other black or Asian people. I think it took me to go to inner London before um, I saw uh, another black person. And it's rare, like, and I've got other friends who are black and Asian barristers, but I still, I don't, I hardly see them. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, obviously, I know it's because of what's going on at the moment, but still, you know, I was at Wood Green last week, and I didn't see, I, you know, I'm, it's the only one, but you know, I, I crack on, I, I do, I do the job, I, I love it, but it's, um, it, it's been, a, it's been a really, really blessed journey, and I, I would say as well that in terms of people asking why. I transferred to the bar I, automatically as soon as I became a barrister I get better and more serious work than yeah. I probably would have as a solicitor advocate I mm. think it's hard to be a solicitor's advocate freelance without being attached to a firm and even then council's always going to get the the best pick of the work and yes. and I think so I've been very very fortunate you know, and it's it's been blessed. It's, yeah. I'm, I'm I'm really happy with the way everything's going. My clerks are fantastic. Great James Street is a great set. It's I think it's, you know, I I called it right going to there, and I and I'm absolutely delighted to be honest with you. My diary is always full. 
fantastic no, you said it you have been blessed but at the same time you worked hard to get there and it's sometimes you get lucky in life but it's also you draw your own path and mark you've addressed such great things and thank you so much for sharing your journey i mean i had a roller coaster of emotions listening to your journey it, it has been fantastic you are a hero um so mark tell us so before that you were a dj how was that compared to the bar and um what how did you how how are you coping with the difference between djing and now advocating all right so look i, I quit djing professionally in 2012 i started in 1992 i, I was a jungle drama based dj moving on to uk garage then moving on to bbc one extra in 2007 presenting doing quite a lot of production work and i kind of stopped in 2012 as a result of death of my friend in an event in an event where he got unfortunately stabbed to death um and then i was kind of out of it a bit when i came into the law sphere but you know the I, I know it sounds weird, but I have an analogy that I tell people. And DJing, I, I was self-employed, is exactly the same as being a barrister to me because, <laughs> look, as a DJ, I had an agent. Clerks are the same as agents. They they fill your diary. Yeah. They run your diary. They tell you where to go. Now, I, I happen to do a lot of court cases in, in different parts of the country. Like I said, I did a jury trial in Stoke on Trent. I could be, you know, I've gone to further afield as well. Uh, uh, you know, I've got another trial that's due to come in in Ipswich very soon. Mm-hmm. And a lot of these places, I actually DJed in all these cities around the country. And, and it was every weekend. So... I'm traveling in the same places I was when I was a DJ. I've got clerks instead of an agent and I will perform to a lay bench or a jury instead of performing to a crowd. And obviously where I'm used to being self-employed, the business model is exactly the same. Do you know what I mean? There's yeah, no, I love there's, it. There's I no love difference. Yeah, go on. So that's why I'm, I, it's very natural progression for me because of it's the self-employed aspect of it. I know what to expect and now I know how it works. So yes. I think those kind of things really work for me. So no, it's, um, there's not much, in terms of how it runs, there's not much of a transition. Obviously you need to know an awful lot of law and advocacy and there's so much you pick yes. up along the way. But again, I, I think I've taken to it quite naturally. Yeah, definitely. And um, I think that's one of the reasons why you wanted to become a barrister and not a solicitor. Yes, um, definitely. I mean, I did think about all that duty solicitor um, thing and it's just not for me. I think I don't like, yeah, I don't like being employed. I just, it sounds bad. I just hate being in the office, like going to the same place every day is just boring for me. And obviously with dyspraxia, the endless paperwork. Now, obviously at the bar, we have to do some paperwork with attendance notes, but it's not that bad in case prep, like skeleton arguments. But honestly, it's not that bad. Even your written advices I've drafted is, is actually not that bad compared to the amount of stuff I was doing as even a trainee solicitor, and I, I wouldn't want to go back to that again. Yeah. Um, you know, and I think solicitors, they're not given as much, criminal defence solicitors, I should say, should, are not given the, uh, as much, uh, the, the respect they deserve for yes. the amount of work that they do and the amount of hours that they work and the, the, the poor remuneration that they actually receive it, it is really oh. bad. Like people yeah. say there's no money in crime, but you, could, you remember crime, as a, as a barrister, your money's... Um, uncapped and if you get a really really good paying brief a junior brief 
like that literally can pay your bills for the year and 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 it could really end up being close to you know a salary for a year if you, you if you're on a real long case that lasts for a long time yeah. as a solicitor you get a, a fixed fee and obviously it's partners you're different and senior solicitors but as a rule it's with the duty stuff you have to do and then you're expected to do police stations at night run how much cases go to court it's an awful lot of work yes. and, the, and I think the remuneration that they receive really should be double than what they actually get paid I mean the average wage for us this is about about 36 30, 36 grand something like that a year and that's a, a new and that's a qualified solicitor yeah a few years PQE and I think it should be double that. And again, I don't think they're appreciated. Even no. there's no shortage of of aspiring barristers wanting to come to the criminal bar. Obviously, it's the whole glamour of jury trials that we still do. And the the wig gowns. and gown thing, the wigs and gowns, and it's all it's very it is very um swashbuckling kind of thing. <laughs> it, it is you you feel it and it, it you know it, it makes a difference. Whereas um you know, I don't really see so much people eager to become criminal defence solicitors, and that's a shame because it's a it's a very good job. I mean, it wasn't for me, as reasons I've stated, but yes. it's still a, a job that should should get so much more respect than it does. Absolutely, yeah. They need they need more recognition, and hats off to these solicitors because I was going to say exactly what you said, um, and yeah, they work. Um, crazy amount of hours same as the barristers and even work harder and um they need they need more appreciation definitely mark um, now mark tell us about your um life during lockdown and i know I, I mean i know you're a covered proof barrister I, I see all your linkedin posts about staying out about traveling far and your you know your scrumptious pizza dinners um how are you coping with the lockdown uh, you know what courts are open so for me in crime it's business as usual I, I again as I said when I first qualified I was expected to go I went to court all the time so when everything was closed and uh, around me I was still going out and um, I'm doing my I'm doing my thing in the courts and again it's kind of continued um I've, though funny enough though I had COVID over Christmas um, oh, nice. really really bad and I got so ill my wife had to call the ambulance for me I thought literally I was gonna die um, oh, wow. and that was so it started on the 23rd of December so no Christmas for me I was no. and I got worse and worse after Boxing Day and you know we t- the only time I came out of my house in three weeks was to be taken to the, the testing centre um, and it took me about five weeks to recover from the cough as well but I've never been so ill the fever the chills um and so I didn't catch it from court, I'd say. I, I, my wife's a secondary school teacher, right. so they had an outbreak in her school. So, um, yeah, it, it was bad. But other than that, I, I've been kept so busy. Even when the first lockdown, I was doing police stations. And again, with the CVP things, which I absolutely detest, but they do have some use if you're far and, and you, you're trying to cover a couple of courts in a day. But um, some cases, like the police station-wise, things like murder and things like, um, rapes you, you simply just can't do it over a telephone yes. or CVP. you need to advise people in person and, and it's the same with some of the cases like I had a case in Reading Crown Court the other day and I um, I was 
it was um I could have done it virtually, but I insisted on going in person and bringing the defendant with me. We entered a guilty plea, and the judge really appreciated that we came to court. Uh, I spoke to the judge, and I was able for a, a possession of intent to supply a class A. I was able to get um the defendant a two-year suspended sentence which wow. probably wouldn't have been possible any, any other way and and and, the, and I was able to advise him in person so CVPs are okay for small matters but in person is is really really important but in terms of the, the lockdown thing I mean work-wise I don't know it's any different but it, I do I do miss the socializing because again it's the networking Yes. And networking is what brings you contacts with solicitors, being my new clients and other people. Um, and I think that all students, everyone has to understand that networking is the absolute key is I think that's the prerequisite for, you know, you can have the best grades. You can have gone Oxbridge. You can have an outstanding on the bar course or a distinction on the LPC. Yeah. And, and, but knowing people is going to open that door for you much Absolutely. easier and it's going to keep the door open for you because it's all good and well, you, you being a pupil barrister, but who are you getting your briefs from? Do you know what I mean? They, yeah. like, you're, it's, a, it's an investment you even get in a pupillage. And so people want to know that you're able to keep um, your brief, generate your own work. All, I think the days of sitting on your backside thinking that work is going to come to you is 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 over people need to yeah. be more proactive and if you if you've come with your contacts and you've been involved in the, the profession and then you're coming in to people and chambers can see you, you can always already make money for them that's going to go a long way Absolutely, absolutely. And I think, Mark, you're not the only barrister that says this. Every single uh, session, webinar, Zoom, any barrister that I speak to, they say the same thing. Make sure you network. It is a gateway to the profession. Uh, now, Mark, um, you've set up a few foundations. I believe the Dyspraxia Foundation and the Canna Foundation. Uh, you worked for, you worked with the Sparkle to Life. Uh, what organisation touches you the most? Oh, well, I didn't set them up. I'll make that clear. So Dyspraxia Foundation oh, was, was going about, about 20 years. And what happened, I actually spoke to them. I joined as a member and I told the story about my dyspraxia. And then the next day, they invited me to go on Victoria Derbyshire show oh. <laughs> on the BBC and talk about a bit of my story with some <laughs> other younger children. And, and that was good. And then I've been, I've spoken at all the events, ever, um, well, quite a few of them um, ever since. And then... I was a trustee for them and then right. because of the studies it became so overwhelming and I you know I was stressed for a lot of other things going on so I left but what they did they invited me to a special um event to talk in Birmingham in, in the end of 2019 and they actually made me an ambassador oh wow and so <laughs> I was like wow yeah and so I mean it is very close to my heart having had dyspraxia has such a major impact on my life like in terms of, of my lack of dancing skills and <laughs> my my lack of um, sporting skills I mean and contact sport I should say yeah. but um and then um the there was the the, the Kana Foundation I'm not doing so much with them at the moment but I am doing quite a lot with um the um Spark to life, life. Spark, yeah. spark to life. So to life. I told you all previously, I worked with them for about five years yes. and I was a project coordinator. And so I started as a volunteer and, and just worked my, as a session worker. And then I 
got employed uh, and then I, I started doing the prison inreach project. I was working inside HMP Felton and ISIS and Thameside with young offenders. And then I started doing all the mapper panels and with probation services. And I worked with them the, the, alongside the gangs unit police and had a lot of say, if you know about the gangs matrix, yes. which, which various organizations are calling for it to be abolished. Mm. My role was to take names and it was generally black and Asian minority ethnic people on, on there. My role was to get the names removed wow. off of there and, and explain to the police why they should be removed. And um, I, I I still advise with them and I've, you know, I do some kind of good work with them. They send um, some clients my way. So it's, um, it's very, very good work they do. And, and, and the guy, the pastor Des Brown is the, developed a fantastic organization um, which has run it has been running about 10 years and he's he's done a, some brilliant work within the community mm-hmm. um in about five London boroughs and also the county of Beaconsfield so it's um it's good oh, I also do mentoring as well in in my in my local school school in Lewisham yes 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 the London borough of Lewisham yeah your yeah. Your, your mentor local secondary school isn't it that's that's my wife's school yes I go in and, ah. and talk to the kids so I think it's very important to, to mentor and just show show um the youth that you know pe- someone like myself can become a profession which usually people wouldn't associate someone yeah. like me being in a profession. I mean, look, if you see me today, I've got my hoodie on, my baseball cap. You know, I've got both my ears pierced. I've got nine tattoos, you know. Wow. I, I listen to rap music and whatever else. So that's just me. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we're going to see you later on on our TikTok. Um, we're going to see that hoodie you're wearing. Maybe maybe um, the, some of the tattoos you can show us. <laughs> mm. um, so, Mark, we're going to move on to now um, to talk about the criminal law reforms. And I'm going to ask you one, two questions. Uh, first question is, um, tell us about the public funding and um, uh, public funding cuts and the impacts on the defendants. Um, but just first of all, simplify to the uh, podcast listeners what the public funds are, um, because that law simplified, we aim to to simplify the law it's legal aid so basically um legal aid is something that you would get um if you're arrested in terms of criminal law um you'd get into if you were arrested and so um as a general rule of thumb if you're arrested in a police station you're entitled to free and independent legal advice uh, if you go to max court depending on how much you earn um, i think it's 230 pound limit a week disposable income left a week if you've got less than that you can get legal aid if not you have to pay mm-hmm. and then in crown court you've got to pay a contribution obviously if you win your case you get anything you get a percentage of that back um and if you lose obviously you've got to pay costs etc and now since LASPA, which is the Legal Aid and Punishment Sentencing of Offenders Act. I probably said that back to front, forgive me. It is a bit of a mouthful, but we call it LASPA 2012. So um, what you, um, they've did a lot of cuts. So there used to be a lot of legal aid in family law, yeah. and also housing law and civil as well. And they've literally cut it to the bone. Um, and again, it's very difficult. We're, we're already on a fixed fee basis. Um, and it's been cut back to what solicitors earn. I think they've increased it for advocates slightly. And so me starting as a new advocate from September last year, the money yeah. went up after the bar, the criminal bar, who's brilliant, battled for it to go up. 
but um, it's still not as good as nowhere near as good as it could be. Yeah. And magistrates' courts play particularly bad. Like, for example, the average hearing, um, if your counsel or your freelance list is about around about fifty pound, sixty pound, um, and and the actual the actual fee for a magistrate's hearing is about two hundred and forty-two pound. I think it's not much. Now you've got to no. make, run the case, make costs meet. And um, it's, it's it's quite poorly remunerated, as I was saying. Yeah. But basically, how it affects the lay people is just that there's only so much you can do with the money that that's actually spent, and then obviously you have to maximise your. How can I say the people that you're representing to actually pay the bills? Yes. And so if you un- understand, if you've got two hundred people on your caseload, it's going to be you're not going to be giving people the gold plate service that they may feel they deserve um and so it's very it's very difficult i I know you know solicitors barristers we do our best and it's probably easier for me because i'm an independent bar so every case i get i'm instructed you know i always make sure that i do my best but i'm not under pressure running how much different cases at one time so i get in i do my job and then i get out again yes so it's difficult but um you know legal aid is a fundamental thing in this, this particular country, but it, the cutbacks have affected a, a lot of people. And so when people are told that you have to pay to represent, um, pay for representation, it causes problems. And some offences, there's no legal aid at all, like possession of cannabis, um, section five public order offence, you're not, you're not going to get it, unless there's certain exceptional circumstances. Yeah. And so it's difficult for people to understand that and it, it, it it's it's a shame and another thing is it's appeals we find where people think that they're convicted and they want their thing appealed but you've got to pay for an appeal generally unless a, a solicitor's firm handled your appeal sending it to another firm you can um no one ain't going to do it on legal aid because the money's so bad yes and and it's the cost because you know what we what we charge privately outstrips what we'd get legal aid vastly mm-hmm. and and so people seem to forget that that we're still lawyers and mm-hmm. so it's it's supposed to be a high paid profession but obviously legal aid is looking at the volume but again people people just need to be aware of these kind of things and yes. it's not us we're not fat cats um I'm, <laughs> and i'm not i'm not saying that you, you as a barrister over time you, you can't do well but compare that to commercial law and, and oh, the yeah. kind of money that they get where, you know, um, and a newly qualified salary could be £120,000 a year. Yes, yes. It's, then, it's shocking, yes. Mm, but money makes money, so it is what it is. But people just need to be aware of that, I think. Yeah, definitely. And especially with the COVID, it has um, affected numerous, um, the majority of the people because they've been furloughed and um, it had great impact on, on people. Um, so, Mark, we'll move on to uh, the sentencing reforms. Um, what do you think about uh, the increase in long, longer prison terms and the impacts of that? Uh, so, I, I I don't really um, really agree. I mean, with with the serious offences, I understand, and I think public protection in terms of licensing should be looked at, probation service involvement. So things like the murders, the rapes, the terror offences, yes, but other things where they're making increasing sentences to the third way point instead of the half automatic halfway point, I'm sceptical. I'm not sure that having more people in prison 
is the solution. Is, is, is the long-term solution. And the main concern for me is the drug laws because that is what how um, black, Asian and ethnic minority people seem to, and especially black people seem to be dis, disproportionately um, um, and, and have the disadvantage, I think, and it's down to the rate of stop and search, et cetera, and over-policing in these particular communities. Yes. I think that if there was drugs reform and you took the drugs out of the gang's hands, it would make a massive difference. But this, this government's never going to do it. Um, and this country is just too far right wing compared to the rest of most of Europe and definitely states where everyone else around the world is far more progressive um, yeah. than this. And I, I, you know, I think that causes a problem. I think also in terms of sentencing reforms, one thing that they've not looked at is the, the, the remanding of prisoners. And I, I, I'm concerned about that because... If you're remand, we have, it's meant to be innocent until proven guilty. Correct. And my concern is what's happening in COVID, people are not getting access to their solicitors. Um, you can't get legal advice. You can't give instructions. And I've actually had to cite Article 6 argument on a bail application in um, Chelmsford Crown Court this oh. year to get someone out because they, they wouldn't have had, a, they, you know, they're entitled to a right to a fair trial. And that wouldn't have happened because they were unable to contact this solicitor and unable to give instructions prior to their trial. And the judge um, agreed with my, my, my submissions and, and released the guy. I think electronic the monitored curfews or tagging yeah. should be much more widely used for, for people that, rather than remanding and remand should only be a last option for the most serious offences I don't even think people who abscond for low level offences should be remanded mm. I think you know it's way it's 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 um it takes up too much space inside the prisons and it's not fair to have these people who might even get acquitted serving a sentence or ser practically serving a sentence and then only to be acquitted at the end of it so there are all these considerations so i'm not over keen on the reforms but yeah. i understand a lot of these things were triggered by the terrorism stuff um, that people were in prison and came out and, and committed further offences. And people like the John Wall boys is where he was released on probation. Obviously, yes. he's been put back in, but all of these things, that, that, um, I think the government reacts to the court of public opinion, if I'm being honest. And yeah. they're more interested into what the Daily Mail or the Sun say, rather than listen to legal professionals. Yeah, you know and it's I mean? unfortunate. Yeah, definitely. And the, the fact that they have set some trials for 2024 due to the COVID um, backlog is, is, is it's insane, isn't it? Yeah, and, and, and again, it's the back, I've been hit by that. I've got trials in 2022. I've heard of 2023. I've not heard of anyone that I personally know 2024. But I mean, one thing, though, to bear in mind is just because they're sat that far ahead, if the social distancing is abolished, because look, you can't have big music events and festivals and then start and then expect jury trials to still be social distance for yeah. 12 people if you're going to have 10,000 people mingling. And so it, yeah. if they abolish social distancing, a lot of these cases will come forward. So the backlog will still be there, but it won't be bad. That's I mean, it will be all hands on deck, but, you know, it, it, it's bad. But the, the government, uh, uh, you know, I... They do what they, they wish to do. They're led by how they look or, or perceived in the press. Yes. And, and do people really care? No one really cares about criminal law yeah. until 
they're actually in front of a court themselves. And people have this attitude of, oh, why should this def- the defendant have a right to legal advice or they should get sentenced more, they shouldn't be coming out halfway. But you have to understand, all it takes is for someone to be driving down the road in the car. A child runs out in front of the car, they kill that child, they get done for dangerous driving and it ends up going to the Crown Court. What are they going to do? Yeah. And this person might have been on, of good character, never been in trouble before in their life, never done anything wrong, and then that happens. Who do they turn to? Do you know what I mean? You, you just simply can't take these things for granted. Do you know yeah. what I mean? Not yeah. not everyone who gets in trouble in the criminal criminal justice system is actually involved in criminality. Absolutely. It so happens that they've made one mistake, something that might have not even been in it might have been beyond their control. Or, or they might have been accused of something that they didn't even do yeah. and then you're in the system and, and people need to I think the public need to appreciate that um, so Mark we're going to move on now to um, quick fire round questions I'm going to ask you a bit more um, fun questions here because Law Simplified is all about making the law accessible fun and simple um, so let's imagine that you're on a plane right now and you're heading to your a, a holiday tell us your favourite holiday destination and where are you heading to right now Oh, well then, um, I think it would probably be, if I could, it would be States. Really? Yeah, I, I used to love going to States. Um, I, and I did plan to go there last year. But obviously, with what happened, I just ended up going to Monaco. But States, and I've got a, a particular affection for the city of Philadelphia. Oh, okay. Um, yeah, so I love it. I mean, I, I DJed. In my DJ career, I've been to states like a good 20 times and played in major, major cities throughout the US for years. But I, I came to love it there. And, you know, it's got a lot of issues, a lot of horrible social issues. You know, black people have been treated um, appallingly there. Yes. But I, I still love it. There's some cultural stuff and things you don't get nowhere else in the world. The people are crazy, but they're warm and they're friendly. And and as I said, something just draws me to Philadelphia. And I don't know what it is about that city, but I just love it. <laughs> yeah, I've heard I've heard a lot of good things about Philadelphia. And I, I thought you were going to say Miami uh, or California, but... Uh... I've, I've been there too. I've been Miami. I've got um, a cousin that lives in Miami. She's a doctor out there. And I've got... Um, in, and I've been to LA and all San Francisco DJing all over mm-hmm. there, but um, Philly, I don't know. And it's you know, it's in terms of poverty, the ghettos are really quite severe. You know, you've got house row houses falling to bits, and it's really, it's really quite bad. But it's something real about Philadelphia that you know people are very pretentious in New York. And and yes. and LA, it's all this Hollywood glamour lifestyle. <laughs> people are just real down-to-earth, honest, humble, hard-working in Philadelphia. And I like that. I respect that. And I've always got love for that place. And I like oh. Philly cheesesteaks as well. <laughs> it's one of my favourite guilty pleasures, junk food. So. Did you know what I was going to ask you? What's your favourite food? But I guess we got the answer to that. <laughs> yeah, that's, yeah, it's one of my favourite foods. Yeah. <laughs> um, Mark, tell us about an activity that you do that takes your mind off work and all the stress. Uh, well... Drums. I've played drums. I'd say for since 1987 when I was bought a snare drum, and I love playing drums. I've had loads of drum kits. I've got two, and I plan to. There's a couple of other guys. One guy in my chambers, and another 
solicitor called Terence and we, we're playing, he's a fantastic guitarist and we're planning to meet up and jam. So I like jazz music, I like, you know, blues, rock and and so drums, when I when I really get into the kit, it gets me into the zone. That's that's my one of my favourite things to do. And I also love cycling as well. So in the lockdown, when we were allowed to go where we want, um, I used to, you know, I used to cycle from my house in Lewisham to um, some, was it East Sussex, um, East Grinstead in East Sussex, which is about 30 plus miles. Wow. And 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 I loved it. It was so peaceful. That's you know, you're going through, the, you know, going through country lanes, hills, yeah. you know, and it was really, um, I, I like that. So those are my two things for relaxing, I think. Yeah, like cycling, they always say it's like meditating. It's it's equivalent yeah. to meditating. Yeah. Um, fantastic. Okay, Mark, I'm going to ask you one last question, and that's the most serious question we have on the podcast. Are you ready? Yeah. yeah. If you had one superpower, what would it be? Uh, time machine. <laughs> Tell us why. I'd go back in time and write some of the wrongs, or I'd try to prevent oh. them. So that would be the, that would what I'd want to do. There's been so much injustice of, of it that's happened in the world. And years later, we have the answer on things could have been preventable, things like whether Grenfell, things like Stephen Lawrence, there's, you know, there's so much in, and so for me, being able to go back and all, literally um, alter history, I, I, um, I would, I would do that. Oh, yeah, wow. That would, that would be mine. That was, that's a, that's a fantastic answer, Mark. Oh, amazing. Um, Mark, you have been a fantastic guest and a role model, an absolute role model. Thank, thank you, you so much for being here on your birthday. Thank you. And secondly, thank you for being such a kind and approachable barrister. And, you know, you, you said networking and, you know, networking is fantastic. And I think you are one of the role models to the aspiring barristers. Oh, thank and you so much. It's been a pleasure. This brings me to the end of this podcast. If you want to know something special about Mark Robinson, make sure you check it out on our TikTok at Law Simplified UK. Yes, you heard it right. We are on TikTok. And make sure you follow Mark Robinson on LinkedIn at Mark-Robinson. Whatever you do, do not forget to follow us on our social media we are all over the social media platforms we are on facebook twitter instagram and now even tiktok yes at law simplified uk and make sure you visit our website www.law-simplified.co.uk mark once again thank you so much for being here